Good morning. This is Gillen from Rest Reflection. Welcome to this episode of At Work, a fortnightly podcast on all things inequality, injustice, and oppression in the workplace. And for today, again, it is me. I will be your host. And I shall be talking to you about money, money, money. But before I get to it, I'd like to take this opportunity again and as usual to invite your questions, your query, your dilemma. Please get in touch to say hello, to give us some feedback, perhaps to suggest some area of discussion by email using contact at restreflections.co.uk or at work at restreflections.co.uk. So the topic of today's musing is related to two things, I guess. Last year, I wrote a piece that I entitled Internalized Scarcity, something along those lines. And I presented my musing on money and social class and social deprivation and growing up in essentially inner city France, inner city Paris to be precise and how that has influenced so much of my relationship, not only with the material, actually, but what I come to expect in the world, particularly around justice. And so I have been invited this weekend as part of a conference at the Freud Museum to think about money and psychoanalysis relationship with money. And so therefore money and the material in the clinic and within economies of care and what it means actually to be handling money and all the symbolic around that, the fantasies, but also the real materialities that money represent. And so I'm part of that. So I'm going to be bring in my thinking around that model. And so today I'm going to tell you a little bit about that model. So if you are a Rest Reflection members, I would invite you to get onto that article. It is not freely accessible, but at the time that I had released it, I made it accessible for some time. Now it's only accessible to members. So if you are members, just go ahead and read it. So a little bit about how that thinking came about and what I'm going to talk about this weekend at the Freud Museum. By the time the podcast is released, I would have given the presentation. Like most of the ideas that I propose, they are largely shaped by my own thinking, my own lived experience, and they are anchored in some autoethnographic notes, you might say analytics, you might say theory building. I hope that's not too academic. But essentially what I am saying is how I have experienced the world has led me to think in particular ways about the world and that is what shapes my scholarship. I guess I need to tell you a little bit about attachment because essentially what the models aim to say or aims to present or aims to propose is that we talk a lot about attachment and we talk a lot about our relationship to therefore the maternal. But actually what I'm saying is that we also need to think about the material. 
a little bit about attachment, very, very briefly. DID dates back to Bowlby's work, psychological thinker, psychoanalyst, post-war British. And he was really interested in what happened to children who had not been nurtured. And he did a lot of work with adolescents who ended up offending and looked at some of the common factors between children at risk of developing or ended up developing psychological difficulties and children who ended up offending. Now, that is really potentially offending summary of his earth. But nonetheless, he was interested in the maternal infant diet and the importance of that diet in relation to children's welfare and the trajectory for their psychosocial development and relational development. It really gave us the idea, the framework for attachment as a working model. So the idea being that when we are essentially looked after, attended to, cared for in infancy and in early childhood, we develop what is called a healthy working model. We might say a secure basis in its lingo, which means that we trust that we can go and explore the world and we trust that our needs are going to be met in relationships, essentially. And that provide the foundation for healthy relationships and that provide the foundation for healthy cognitive development and that provide the foundation for healthy social development. Now, Bobby essentially was a little bit of a reactionary, we might say, in relation to classic Brogian psychoanalytic ideas and particularly the notion that much psychoanalytic thinking, certainly at the time, was based more on fantasy formation, or we might say the fantasy world, the imagination or the imaginaries of the infant or the children, rather than real happening in the life of the infant. So that was really a departure, what he saw as a departure in his thinking. So what he was saying, essentially, is that there are real things that happen that have real consequences in the life of infant. And one of those real things, real happening, was for him disruption in infant-child relationships. So therefore, disruption in attachment having traumatic consequences. Now, we do know that following on Bowlby's work, Ainsworth's work, and a lot of post-Bowlby theorists and attachment theorists have supported much of his theorization. We also have bucket loads of biological and in particular neurobiological study, neuroscientific study, supporting what has been theorized for the past 60, 70 years or so. So that is not under questioning. So I'm not coming here to say we need to throw attachment research. I know that there's lots of questions, particularly from feminist uh, perspective around the overemphasis on the mother and the misogynistic tones of that. I know there's also some criticism from more cultural theorists around the more, let's say, trans-applicability, trans-cultural applicability of attachment models. 
And all of that do bear some validity. What I am not, however, prepared to do is to throw all that thinking out the window because some criticism of it do stand and a lot of criticism of it do stand. But I'm afraid as an idea, as a model, the evidence base for it is also pretty solid. So we can nuance and think we can add some complexity. We can be perhaps a bit more cautious in some of the conclusion that we reach, particularly around reversibility, particularly around change, particularly around healing. But what we cannot do is to say that we need to throw all of that out the window. That I'm afraid I'm not convinced of myself personally, but, you know, do your own research, do your own literature review and reach your own conclusion. So that's what I would say. Also, there has been a lot of thinking around attachment when it comes to parent. Let's increase that to parent, although really the bulk of it, 90% is really mother. And, and by mother, we really mean cis heterosexual women. But for the sake of increasing the conversation, let's say a parental attachment, we have not being as thoughtful, we haven't been as, let's say, as concerned, we haven't been, let's say, as interested in all the configuration, all the factors that I have been arguing are as equally impactful, possibly more, in some circumstances when it comes to attachment. So some of you will follow my writing. If you've read Living While Black, for example, you know that one idea that I have written recurrently about is that of place attachment. So the relationship, the affiliation that we build with places. And so we could say that we get attached to people, but necessarily people are attached to places. And so we could say that necessarily, if we are attached to people, we are also attached to spaces. And so therefore, when we are considering attachment, we are not only thinking about attachment to bodies, we are also talking about attachment to spaces. Now, if we are going to extend this line of thinking, then of course, if we are talking about spaces, we are talking also about the geopolitics of that spaces. That would necessarily include configuration related to borders, related to ahaha, money, so the material related to finance. Now, that takes us, I think, nicely to attachment and to the material and how my thinking along this line kind of emerged. I'm going to tell you a bit more about that and about how I started thinking about money. And unsurprisingly, it was really when I got to building race reflection as a social enterprise. And I've spoken about that. Maybe I haven't spoken about that in the context of attachment and the material and money and space and internalized scarcity necessarily in those terms. But I know that in previous episodes, we definitely touched upon imposterism. We definitely touched upon relationship with money because that has been, let's say, an 
ongoing growth thing for me. And so I have definitely mentioned it more than a few times. But nonetheless, as a reminder, I would say that once I set up rest reflection, there was some challenge around assessing. I want to say worth. I feel uncomfortable saying worth. And I think maybe we in the same domain here. You know, there was some difficulty around assessing the business. There was some difficulty preparing for the success of the social enterprise. And there was also some difficulty planning ahead, right? So imagining a future, a successful future, you might say, a wealthy future, you might even go as far as saying. And so I went and spent a lot of time. I had to spend that time on my own because I spent about a decade in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, the bulk of it in group analytic psychotherapy, but not all of it. But I had to do this work on my own. I'm going to just put that as a point of reflection because otherwise that is another podcast on its own. But I would say that I came to the realization that I had a very difficult and a troublesome relationship with money. And so I came also to the realization that the core of this troublesome relationship with money came from the fact that I grew up poor and I, and I had internalized some pretty toxic discourses around money. And I didn't know that this form of toxicity, you could say some of it was just really just adaptive and related to the fact that I had been exposed to so much injustice. And so therefore I expected injustice, for example. Uh, Some of it was related to the fact that I had no familiarity with wealth. And so therefore I felt unfamiliar around wealth. And some of it was to do with the fact that I had not navigated I had no cultural capital around navigating particular milieu. And so therefore I felt out of place in particular spaces related to to wealth and to money. Now, all those things are natural and you would say they're not pathological, they're just consequences of lack of exposure, you could say. Yeah, that makes sense. Nonetheless, they started to cause me a problem. And so this is what led me to think and to reflect on what was this need? And I started to have conversation within the community and I started to actually read around and see people and, and, and realise that we spoke very little around that need. Now, this need or this experience, I know it's there because I hear people talking about it. Even wealthy people who come from working class background, they often speak about this fear, you could say, partly reality-based, partly fantasy-based, of going broke. I mean, we all have it, that kind of sense of precariousness that at any point in time, you could, again, you know, be eating pasta and oats and sleep on the floor. We all have that sense of precariousness because we have been there. We know that it is a reality, even though it's not. And I think this is the complexity, right? It's a mixture of fantasy and reality. And so I did a bit of research and I realized that there is a lot of thinking that abounds around the relationship between our attachment style. I'm not going to go into the different attachment style. If you're interested and you're not from a psychologist or psychotherapy background, I interest you to look into the different attachment style. What I would simply say is that in a nutshell, you have a secure or insecure. I mean, generally those styles are, I believe, to be stable. I'm not sure that a hundred percent I 
agree with that. I think they can be situation dependent, they can be relationship dependent, they can be life stage dependent. But overall, they are believed to be stable across time. And so it means that if you are more insecure in your attachment, that means again in your infancy, you haven't internalized the idea that your needs are going to be met, then you are going to have an insecure relationship with money. So you are going to be distressful of your capacity to hold on to money or maybe you are going to be more ambivalent with money or maybe you are going to be more irresponsible with money. Essentially, this is the kind of line of thinking. I must say there's not lots of study. There's not lots of thinking out there. There's more informal kind of blog writing around this area than there is formal academic peer-reviewed researches around that. I've done um, some literature review, but there are some a few pieces there and then. I've just bought a book, actually. I've not read it yet, but there are a few academic pieces around there. But nonetheless, from everything that I've come across, there hasn't been some intersectional thinking around actually what does it mean if we take into account both the maternal aspect of attachment and the material aspect of attachment, right? So what I'm saying is that those dimensions so far are assessed or thought about in isolation, right? So in an isolationist fashion, um, it means that we think about maternal attachment as Bowlby and Swerve and all attachment theories say, sitting out there in some category that influence life outcomes, certainly social and relational outcomes, which again, I'm not disagreeing. And then we think about the newer research looking at attachment and finance and attachment and, and money, uh, somewhat disjointed, not speaking to the research on, on the maternal. And so I've been wanting to think about, but okay, what does it mean if we brought those two kind of thinking, those two axes together and think about cross-tabulating them, we could say statistically. So it means that we think on one axis we plot maternal factors and on the other axis material factors. So how is your relationship with your mom, whether you felt that you were looked after, nurtured, attended to, and so you have a secure attachment to her. And how is your relationship with money, i.e. where you looked after financially, or did you grow up in an environment where you were deprived financially? So I put those two things together and I said that there is something here to think about because I say that those two dimensions are communicative, they are intersectional, but more importantly, they can compound vulnerability or they can mitigate vulnerability. If I take my own lived experience, for example, I grew up in inner city Paris. I grew up poor. And when I mean poor, I mean dirt poor. If you put my socioeconomic background into the microscope, it's a little bit messy because my parents were migrant and like a lot of migrants from Africa and from the Caribbean, they actually own a bit of land in Africa. So we're not the poorest of the poorest in Africa. But nonetheless, they were when they came into France because they were deprived of opportunities to earn and to work job commensurate with their education, right? And so it means that we were forcefully, purposefully kept in deprivation and in the ghetto. I mean, that has to be said. These were purposeful state 
decision. They were racist and they were xenophobic state decision made by France and by, you know, a number of European states at the time. And so that means we were poor, poor, right? There is no two way about that. We were poor, poor. And so it means that materially, we were clearly deprived. There's absolutely no two way about that. And so on the axis, on the material axis, I was really deprived. But if you look at the maternal axis, was I as deprived? I don't know. I don't think so, right? I wouldn't say that I necessarily am the most secure person, but certainly I wasn't deprived emotionally. Certainly I wasn't abused. I wouldn't say that I was neglected. And so it means there was still a level of protection because even though there was parental absence because of racism, because of poverty and all the challenges that that brought, there was still a desire to attend to us. There was still a desire to ensure that we are provided for. There was still a desire to ensure that we were afforded the best opportunity. In fact, most of my memories related to my childhood are related to my parents fighting for us. You know, that's, that's true. Related to my parents fighting the school, fighting the police, fighting, fighting the institution to ensure that we were going to be provided with all the opportunities that they felt or that they saw that we desired, that we deprived. So I have always felt loved. That is really the truth. Fundamentally, that's the truth of the matter. So you can see that there was a buffer so that the, the poverty and the deprivation and the racism, we could even say, and everything else that I was exposed to was buffered because of that level of care that was still offered to us as a family from the family and from the neighbourhood as well, actually. Now, if you imagine that I came from a family where there was a lot of abuse, where I was emotionally abused, where I was neglected, where perhaps my parents didn't fight for us, where perhaps they didn't give a damn what happened to us, where perhaps they didn't attempt to give us the best opportunities despite the harm that they saw that was being dished on us. You could see that there would be much more often harm, much more of a negative impact on us. But equally, if we turn things on the head and we think about someone who might have grown up in loads of wealth and money, where for them material deprivation might not have been a factor at all, but perhaps might have had a parent who was completely unavailable, perhaps because of systems misuse or perhaps because they didn't care much about the child, because they didn't want the child or because they were too busy party or because they believed that, you know, it was best for the child to be sent away to boarding school or to what have you. You could see that the fact that they were not looked after emotionally by their mother the main caregiver would have provided the foundation for a, an emotional wound, for a disrupted attachment, which might have left them vulnerable, right? Even though that vulnerability would have been mitigated because materially they were well off. Now, the worst case scenario is, of course, you have people 
who have been deprived materially and they have been deprived maternally or parentally. So you have disrupted attachment, if you like, on both fronts. So that is really the core of the model. Why does it matter in the workplace? Well, as I told you a little bit, I came to that realization and I came to this model because of my own lived experience, right? And it took me being a grown woman and at that big age to realize that, hang on, I'm carrying something here and I'm carrying something that I've never explored. And I've carried something that I've never explored, not only in therapy, despite having been in therapy for a long time and having had lots of conversation, but, you know, poverty has never been one of them, having had to do this work. And I think I'm a fairly self-aware person, I'd say, relatively fruitful person, I'd say. And so it means that there was part of my own functioning when it comes to the material, when it comes to money, that I was just not aware of. And so when I came to the realization that actually I was very uncomfortable around wealth and I was very uncomfortable around material comfort, then that opened the door, if you like, for me to be thinking about what other opportunity, what else might I have done in the world to potentially sabotage opportunities? What else might I have done in the world to deprive myself? Not necessarily consciously, not necessarily to cause myself harm or pain, but possibly, possibly to keep to what is familiar. So I could say a lot more. There's not more I could say about, for example, how survival guilt gets in the picture. We could think about how self-worth might get in the picture. We could think about how loyalty to communities get into the picture. We can think about fantasy around colonialism and capitalism can get into the picture. All that means that it's very complex. This relationship that we have with money and with the material and why it's so important that when we get into the clinic and we get us people and we think about attachment to people. We also think about attachment to spaces. And we remember that these spaces are geopolitical. And so that means that they have and they carry particular relationship to history, to the material and to the structural. I hope it's useful to get you thinking about your own relationship with money. I know not everybody grew up as poor as I am. I just want to add to this. I carry no shame whatsoever around the white supremacist colonial doing, which meant that I had to grow up in the way that I grew up. That has made me in terms of who I am as a person, but also as a thinker and as a critical theorist. I needed what I've gone through in the world to be where I am today. So with that in mind, I think I've done okay for myself. You know, I don't need shitloads of money. I never say no to living a good life, but I don't need shitloads of money. And I can also survive from very little money. And I think that is a gift. And so that is it, my good people. Enjoy the rest of your day, week, fortnight, and until next time, please take care. 
subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to send us queries, questions and dilemmas to be reflected on, please email at work at racereflections.co.uk.